Hey, if you have your Bible today, go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to continue our sermon series today through the Gospel of Matthew. So if you've been with us for the past few months, you've uh, seen uh, all the different things that have led up to Jesus's earthly ministry. And last week we started talking about how he went around and he taught the crowds and he healed people. He called his disciples and we talked about what that looked like to be called by Jesus. And so today we're going to look at uh, his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. It goes from Matthew 5 to chapter 7. So we don't have time today to go through all of those things. That's a lot to cover. Today we're just going through 12 verses. This is known as the Beatitudes. So follow along here, Matthew chapter 5. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to go there today. The words are also going to be behind me, or if you have the Bible app on your phone, go to the More tab, then Events, click our church, and then you can find all the information you normally find in your paper bulletin. So follow along with me here in Matthew chapter 5. This is what it says. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We're going to take a look at this and what this means for our lives today. Before we do that, though, as always, would you just go before the Lord with me in prayer and ask Him for His help with that as we talk about this. Pray with me. Father, we thank You for Your Word, that it's good, it's perfect. We can build our lives on it. And Jesus, I pray that You would help us to do that today. Holy Spirit, would You give us wisdom as we talk about this? Would You soften our hearts to what it is that You have for us? That we would not only understand these words with our brain, but God, that we would really internalize them, that we'd let them sink down into our heart to permeate our lives so that we may be changed by you. Holy Spirit, conform us to your image to make us look less like us and more like you. That when we leave this place today, as we asked earlier, Father, we would be in a deeper relationship with you, that we would be able to worship you and glorify you better when we leave this place because of the time that we spent here together because of the time that we spent worshiping you through song and through reading your word and talking about how it applies to our lives. Jesus, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you what you've, for what you've done on the cross on our behalf, that you paid the, the price. And so, Jesus, we give our lives to you this morning. And I pray that we would all say, soften my heart, O oh God. Change my heart. Jesus, we want to worship you. Help us to do that. It's in your precious life-changing name we pray. Amen. Hey, uh, you've probably heard of the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount before. I know when I was growing up, my mom had a little uh, plaque decoration thing. It's like a Hobby Lobby type deal. Uh, it had the Beatitudes on there. It's pretty popular. Maybe you've even seen them outside of church at some point. Surely if you've been in church for any amount of time, you've heard of Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Even if you didn't know the reference, you've heard, oh, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek. We, we get that. These are the Beatitudes. 
Beatitudes. But this is happening right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Let me give you just a little bit of background of what this looks like. Uh, Today we would say it's a sermon on a hill. Uh, If you go to Israel where they think that Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, we would look at that today and probably call it a hill. And as people looked at that back then, they said, man, this is a sermon on the Mount. This is amazing. And if you think about that name, It's kind of a silly name. Uh, Let me explain. This is a man-made name. Jesus never says, hey, this is my Sermon on the Mount. It would be similar to me standing up here and saying, uh, the name of my uh, sermon today is the sermon from in front of the sanctuary at the church. Right? It's not descriptive at all, right? It doesn't give you any information about what we're talking about. You're like, that's every sermon, right? You're like, yeah, exactly. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, I, uh, my family got a dog. I was the oldest, and I was in charge of naming the dog. It was a Jack Russell Terrier, and I named it Jackie because I'm very creative like that. And that reminds me of how they named this sermon, right? It's a sermon on the mount. It's not very descriptive, but as Jesus is giving this, crowds are gathering around him. Now, many people, as they look at these Beatitudes, will have certain interpretations about them. And even non-Christians, a lot of times, will quote the Beatitudes and they'll say, hey, these these are good things. We like what Jesus taught about these things. In fact, it's even been told that world leaders have said, man, if only everybody would adopt the Beatitudes, everything would be fine. Uh, We would have no problems on earth and all the wars and all the problems would all be solved. The problem with that is that they're attacking it from uh, a way that really Jesus didn't mean. Let me give you a few observations here on the Sermon on the Mount before we talk about it to kind of talk about what Jesus is talking about. First off, right here at verse 1, it says that Jesus here, he's going to the crowds, he opens his mouth, and he starts talking, and the disciples are gathering around him to hear him. Here's my first observation for you. This message is for believers. Jesus does not talk about uh, following him. He doesn't talk about a relationship with him. He does that in several other accounts. Here, though, he's talking to his followers here. Now, that's not to say that there are not unbelievers out in the crowd. There probably are. There are probably people who don't have a relationship with Jesus that are hearing this, that maybe even after they're hearing this, uh, come to Jesus and have a relationship with him and start following him. But that's not necessarily what this message is intended for. You know, so many times, as, as believers, we want to attack our uh, own actions, our own behaviors, or others' actions and behaviors. And Jesus, he doesn't do that. First and foremost, in every situation we see Jesus in, he says, I want you to follow me, and then after you're following me, we'll work on all the behaviors. We'll start transforming you. We'll start changing you. But we do not have a works-based salvation that says, hey, you really need to clean up your life before you come to Jesus. That's just simply not the case. Ephesians chapter 2 lays this out very, very clearly for us when it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Look at this. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. In other words, you can't look at the Beatitudes and say, I need to do that and then I'll start following Jesus. That's backwards. Jesus says, no, 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 no. I want you to follow me. Then we'll work on these things together. Second, my second observation for you are these things are not pick and choose. You know, the, the gifts of the Spirit, this is, this is, this is different. When, when you look at something and say, well, you know, I have the gift of service, or I have the gift of, uh, I can, I'm really good at administrative uh, things, or, or singing on the worship band, or running the text up. These are spiritual gifts that God might give you that might be different for each and every one of us. The Beatitudes are not like that. 
It's not pick and choose. You can't say, well, you know, um, about that porn spirit thing. Ah, man, it's not really me, but I can be meek. I, I, could, I could be meek. Well, actually, uh, that one's not that. I'll actually, I'll go do, no, no, no. It's not like that. It's a package deal. When Jesus says this, he says, hey, this is what it looks like to be part of my kingdom, which brings me to my third observation here. This message is radically different than what was expected from his followers. His followers here are hearing Jesus. He's the Messiah. And they're excited that he is now here. It has been hundreds of years since God has sent a prophet to speak on his behalf to Israel. There's a period of silence at the end of the Old Testament and before the New Testament in about 400 years where there's no prophets. They don't hear from God. They are expecting that a Messiah will come, though. And their expectations about this Messiah... And they have a lot of political things that go on here. Rome right now is over Israel. They're ruling over Israel. And they think that the Messiah will set them free from Roman oppression. And Jesus comes on, the, on, on, on here and he goes, man, I want to set you free, but not in that way. I want to set you free in a way better way than you could ever imagine. He gives these Beatitudes and he says, this is what it looks like to be a part of my kingdom. And as you hear that, we talk about that a lot, but you might actually think, man, what does that look like? Like, what is, it, what is God's kingdom in the first place? What are you talking about? Jesus, he brings this up here in the next chapter, Matthew chapter 6. He teaches the crowds how to pray. And he says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, you know this, this is the Lord's prayer. Hallowed be your name. Which, by the way, can I just say, the Lord's prayer is kind of named like the Sermon on the Mount. Like super vague, you're like, that's the prayer that Jesus prayed. So we're just going to say that. Okay, your kingdom come. Look at this, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus speaks of the kingdom coming. Jesus' kingdom is coming. It's not a kingdom with a military that we're used to. It's not a kingdom with politics as we're used to. It's Jesus coming and his name being glorified. It's people worshiping Jesus. It's people coming into a relationship with Jesus, allowing themselves to be transformed by Jesus, and then being committed to the mission of Jesus to go out and to make disciples. This is what God's kingdom looks like. And the people who are listening to the Beatitudes, to the Sermon on the Mount, his disciples gathering around him, this crowd, they're not expecting that. This is radically different. I mean, when Jesus sat down, I bet you there are tons of people ready to say, man, I am so pumped for this. Jesus is going to give us a game plan. He's going to say, boom, we're taking down Caesar. We're going to take down the Roman army. He's going to do it like this. He's got angels come. This is going to be epic. This is going to be awesome. And they would have been sorely disappointed when he said, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I bet people were just standing around thinking, what? What? Are you... Are you sure, Jesus? This, this sounds weird. This is out there. This is way different than I was expecting this to be. Why? Because Jesus' will here, Jesus' main focus is not on politics. It's not on Israel. It's that actually all will be saved. 2 Peter 3.9 reminds us that it is the Lord's will that all will be saved. And that's what it looks like. Jesus' kingdom looks like here. It's that people are being saved, being transformed by Him and committed to His mission to glorify Him on earth, to make disciples. This is what His kingdom looks like. And it's different than what they were 
expecting. And many times it's different than what we're expecting as well. In fact, the word blessed here uh, in the Greek, you could actually translate that to happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are the meek. It means a little bit more, though, in this context than just simply happiness. Um, the world, if you were to say, what would make you happy? Um, people might say, man, a good burger, good steak, that'd make me happy. What make you happy? A brand new 2024 Jeep Gladiator. That's what, maybe not you, but me, right? These things, these things can make us happy. And the worldly things and secular things, but Jesus says, hey, I actually have something way better than any of that for you. And it's an attitude that you can accept. It is acting as if you are in the kingdom of God and being transformed by me because you are in the kingdom of God and being transformed by me. And that's going to make you happier than any circumstance, any earthly thing around you. And so here's what I want to do today. I want you to do something a little bit differently. Uh, you may notice on your outline, all you have is after these three observations, you have all the Beatitudes, all eight of them. I want to go through all of these and, and, and give you a little glimpse of what it looks like to have this, these Beatitudes, accept these in your life and really embody them. Uh, and I know that's a little bit different. Uh, in preaching class, they would say, go to one point, go to one point, go to one point. You need to drive it home. And uh, Jesus doesn't do that on his sermon. He's got eight different points, and I think he's better than a preaching prof. So we're going to do uh, that today, and we're just going to go through that. And as we do that, I, I really encourage you, jot down some notes, too. Um, these things might impact. You might, one, of the, one or two of these, you might say, hey, yeah, I feel like I got these. And another two or three of these, you might look at and say, Whoo, buddy, I got some work to do on these. I really encourage you. I know that there's not a whole lot of space on your note outline there. Really encourage you to jot down some notes on the backside. Jot down some notes uh, that, that the Lord leads you. And don't forget what he is impressing on you today. Here's Beatitude number one. It happens in verse three. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs are the kingdom of heaven. Many times when we're looking at this and we think about poor in spirit, we think about someone who is just down and out on themselves. We're thinking about somebody who's like, man, I'm just a terrible person and God could never love me. I'm a terrible sinner. I could never be used by God. And it's almost a self-deprecation, right? And sometimes you even hear that from, from preachers. They'll say, you're such a terrible person and God should never love you and you shouldn't be loved by God. And, hey, listen, is it true that we are sinners? Yes, but being poor in spirit, the attitude behind it is not self-deprecation. It's a, I need you, Lord. It's like that song that we just sang, Lord, I need you. There's a glimpse in scripture. Jesus tells us a parable here in Luke chapter 18 about two different guys. This is what he says. It says, two men were, uh, uh, went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I mean, he points to the guy next to him. This dude is self-righteous. I mean, self-righteous, 10 out of 10, right? I mean, this guy, he thinks a lot of himself. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes to all I get. By the way, he's praying like in front of other people. I mean, he's making a show of himself here. And then Jesus, he really juxtaposes these two guys because look at what happened in verse 13. It says, but the tax collector, look at the standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, 
a sinner. That's his whole prayer. Short, sweet, to the point. And this is what Jesus says about these two guys. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This guy got what it meant to be poor in spirit. It's pushing up back against this idea of self-righteousness. This idea of, I'm perfect. I got my two and a half kids and white picket fence. I never sin. Even when I stub my toe against a rock, I never say a bad word, right? Like, I'm just so perfect. Jesus is pushing back against that and saying, no, 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 no. What it looks like to be part of my kingdom is it looks like to be sorrowful over your sin and a, a need for me. This is what it looks like to be poor in spirit. Here's the attitude number two. It happens in verse four. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Um, this uh, does uh, uh, go towards a mourning that might be towards an earthly circumstance, such as uh, the death of a loved one, the death of a relationship, an unmet expectation. This certainly does speak to that, but it speaks uh, more to just that, more than just earthly circumstances and mourning over those. This speaks to a regret, not a casual regret, regret right? Like, a, ah, I wish I would have done this instead of that. Ah, I wish I would have invested in this. I would have been rich, right? Those are kind of like surface level regrets. This is a deep, mournful sorrow over our sin. It's the grief that Luke chapter 18 talks about when he says, hey, I'm sorry, this is actually 2 Corinthians 7.10 that says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly uh, grief produces death. This is what he's talking about. It's this good, godly grief to say, God, I am sorry and I want a good relationship with you and I'm thankful for what you've done to make that possible. See, the enemy, he can come in and say, you're such a terrible person. God could never love you. God could never do anything with you. I can't believe what you've done. And that's that self-deprecation that we can get ourselves into. And what God says is, I want you to be sorrowful over your sin. That's a good thing. That's godly grief. But godly grief brings us closer to Jesus. Worldly grief uh, makes us think, man, God could never use me. I might as well just go do my own thing anyways. A good Godly grief is good in our lives. It's like what this guy did, the, the tax collector in Luke chapter 18, that Jesus, he, he puts against this, this self-righteous religious leader. He says, God, I need your mercy in my life. That's what it looks like to mourn. And it says this, that those who mourn shall be comforted. Why? Because they know the assurance of what God has done for us. That if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, as 1 John 1.9 tells us. That we have the assurance in Jesus that if we come to Him, He will forgive our sins. You might be sitting today and you might be thinking, man, I'm too far gone. I'm just going through life. I'm going through the motions here. Listen, if you're hearing this today, you're not too far gone. Jesus is telling you, you have my assurance. Come to me, soften your heart. Come to me. Be sorrowful over your sin, yes, but in a way that brings you closer to me. That's a, having a godly grief, and you will be comforted. Here's beatitude number three. It says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So many times when we hear the word meek, 
We might uh, think, uh, actually, that just means weak, that you're passive, that, uh, well, uh, you know, so-and-so did that, and so I just, I just need to let them stomp all over me, and that's totally fine. That's, that's not what meek means, though. What meek means is that you have the power to do something, yet the uh, self-control and the humility to say, I'm going to go about this in a righteous, godly manner. Right? It might look like you uh, getting cut off in traffic. This is kind of a, a, a shallow example, but it might look like you getting cut off in traffic. And instead of letting your anger take over, right? Like, oh, I'm going to speed up and I'm going to cut that guy off. I'm going to show him and I'm going to tell him he's number one, but not with this finger, right? And I'm just going gonna, gonna, gonna to show him who's boss here. And It's saying, hey, you know what? I'm going to have the self-control to not let my anger control me. But I'm going to have the self-control and the meekness in my life to say, okay, I'm going to let that guy go, and hopefully he'll stay in front of me, so he won't, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to like mess around with trying to get ahead of him. That's fine. He can be three seconds ahead, and I'm okay with that. That's what it looks like to be meek, to have the power to do something, but then use the humility and the self-control to say, I am going to be a godly person. I'm going to be a righteous person. I'm going to live my life in a way that glorifies God, even when I have the power to do something that I really want to do and would show that person off. And I was wronged and I need to show him who's right. And it's having the power to do it, but the self-control to say, I'm not going to. And it's not a passive or indifference thing either. I think that meekness it's a perfect balance between anger and passiveness and in, in, indifference. It's having the power to say, hey, I'm going to let that go. And not to say, oh, well, what they're doing is right, but to say, I'm going to let God deal with that. It's having the attitude that Paul writes to Timothy. He's a young pastor, and he says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. He's saying, hey, I, I want you to handle these things well, which means that he is not getting himself into foolish conversations, as Paul will write over and over and over to Timothy, that yes, Timothy can get himself in these conversations and he can prove other people wrong, but he's a worker. He's staying on path. He's focused with what God wants him to do. It's like what Paul writes to the church in Rome when he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to you, everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. It's saying, hey, listen, I know that I can go off and do these things, but I think of myself in a correct manner. Not this super high person that always needs to be right and always needs to dominate people in conversation, but I'm going to have the self-control, the perfect mix of self-control and passive indifference between this to say, I'm going with humility to step into this and self-control myself here in order to not let anger take over in my life. I think of also Jesus standing before Pilate and the governor as he's on trial right before they're going to crucify him. They're going to hang him up on a cross. I mean, a terrible, terrible, horrific death. In Matthew 27, it tells us, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, I want, to, I want you just to observe this just for a moment, because I think this is just a perfect uh, example of Jesus being super, super meek. He said, You've said so. 
You've said so. This is the God of the universe. He should be like, hey, listen, dummy, I'm the God of the universe. You betcha. You betcha I'm the Messiah. And Jesus said, you said so. Like, is there any more meek answers than that? I mean, come on. And But when it says, but when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Like Jesus, he could dominate them in the answer. He's the God of the universe. He knows exactly what they're going to say before they're going to say it. And yet he doesn't give them an answer. And then Pilate, he goes, hey, don't you hear these things that they're testifying? Do you not realize what they want you to do to you, Jesus? And look at this. He gave him no answer, not even a single charge. Look at this. The governor was greatly amazed. He's like, you're not going to fight for your life? Jesus here, he's willing to submit, and he's willing not to get in foolish arguments. He knows his outcome. He knows he's going to die on the cross. And he knows that God the Father is going to take what the enemy meant for evil and turn it for good and to offer salvation to all of mankind. And so he can be meek in this situation. Why? Because he's submitting to the will of the Father. And in our lives, we can be meek in situations because we can submit to the will of our Heavenly Father. This is why it says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You know, secular wisdom would say, you know what, if you want a lot of stuff, you've got to get out there, you've got to side hustle, you've got to start businesses, you've got to go invest, you've got to go work and work and work, work yourself to the bone, and you know what, and maybe, maybe if you're lucky, things will work out for you, you can have a nice life. And yet, God says, no, blessed are the meek, blessed are the meek, the people who can control themselves, the people who can submit to God's will over their own, for they shall inherit the earth. God says, hey, the earth isn't for those who work the hardest. The earth isn't for those who can come up with the best ideas. Yes, it, those are good things. Those aren't bad. If God gives you the ability to work and the ability to invent things and start businesses, hey, th those are good things. But he says, the ones who will inherit the earth aren't just those who can work really hard. It's the one who come to me, who can submit to my will, and who can put my will above it all, can, who can put my kingdom above it all. Those are the people who will inherit the earth. This is beatitude number four. It happens in verse six. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. I've told uh, several of you this, but um, I'm going on a backpacking trip later this spring, and I've been trying to get in shape for it, and I've been dieting because of it. And I know you can't probably tell, but I've been hungry this past month, okay? And I don't know if there's anything worse than being hungry, right? It's just constantly on your mind. Sometimes I'll just be sitting in my office, and I'll just be thinking of a hamburger. And you're like, wait, I'm, I'm supposed to be reading this commentary here. What's, why am I thinking of a hamburger, right? Like, this is crazy. You're just always on your mind. Or if you're really, really thirsty, like we've all been in those situations where maybe you're sitting and, and you've got to get through a meeting or something like that. And, or maybe you're in a situation, you're like, well, I'll get, a, I'll get a drink of water later, and just that later never happens, right? It's just constantly on your mind. This is that idea that Jesus is talking about. He says, hey, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's this idea that righteousness is always on your mind. That this is something that you're always going towards. That this is something that you always are thinking about. First Peter puts it like this. You shall be holy for I am holy. He's quoting the Old Testament here. God is saying this to the Israelites. He's saying, be holy for I am holy. A lot of times we have this kind of attitude behind our faith and we say, well, 
how far is too far? What can I actually do and kind of stay within God's boundaries, right? Like, like, is it really that bad that I do that? And I think that's like the wrong question that we should be asking. Because if we're going to hunger and thirst for righteousness, that question doesn't do that. That question says, well, what, what's the least amount of effort that I can do to stay within God's boundaries? The question that we should be asking is, God, what can I do to bring myself closer to you? Not in a self-righteous way, not in a way that kind of lords over my own actions or behaviors above other people, but in a way that is holy so I can be set apart, so I can grow in my relationship with you. I can be transformed by you. It reminds me what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12 when he says, Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Look at this, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Sometimes we think of worship as just what we do here on Sunday mornings, but it's not. It's giving our entire lives to God. It's worshiping Him with our everyday lives and giving ourselves to Him. Why? So that we can be transformed by Him. And the next verse says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is what it looks like to hunger, to thirst, for righteousness. And it says they will be satisfied. You know, the earth, the, the secular wisdom would say, you know, you want to be satisfied? Drive the nicest car, live in the nicest house, take the nicest vacation. And what God says is, you want to be truly satisfied? Hunger for righteousness. Hunger to do my will. Hunger to do uh, uh, my will and to build up my kingdom right here on earth. That's what really matters, and it's truly the only thing that will really satisfy us. You ever come back from vacation? It's really nice. Not really, right? You're like, I wish I was back there, right? I mean, it doesn't really satisfy us, right? Or you ever get like a new thing, and like two weeks later, you're like, oh, it could be better, right? Like, those things can't really satisfy us, but hungering and thirsting for God and righteousness, that's what can truly satisfy us. Here's the next beatitude. Number five, it happens in verse seven. It says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is the idea that we can forgive other people, that we can restore relationships, and that's our attitude behind our conversations and our intentions with other people. I think of what James chapter four says, when it says, don't speak evil against another, uh, one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and a judge. He is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? He's getting at this and not saying that we can't come along brothers and sisters in our faith and say, hey, can I encourage you? Or, hey, I, I see this. Can, can, can I encourage you to maybe correct that in your life and come alongside a brother? In fact, James chapter 5 even says that, that if anyone is among you that wanders from the truth and someone brings them back, let him know whoever brings them back, a, a, a sinner from his wandering, will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. These are good things that we can do. But what James chapter 4 is saying is he's saying, hey, listen, we don't need to be judgmental about people who we don't even really know, especially unbelievers. 1 Corinthians brings us up this idea of judging insiders versus outsiders of the church. If they don't have a relationship with Jesus, yeah, it shouldn't surprise us that they're doing things that are outside 
of God's boundaries. Again, a lot of times we like to attack it on the behavioral side. And what Jesus does is in his ministry, he says, come follow me. And we'll work on behaviors as you're following me. And we'll, we'll work on that and transforming you. But the important part is that you're following me first and foremost. And then we can work on those things. And this is what this is getting to when Jesus says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. He's getting to this attitude that we should have, that we should have this merciful, forgiving attitude towards other people, willing to restore them. And not in a fake way, right? Not in a, not in a way that just kind of buries our head in the sand. Because there's ways that we can do that, right? There's evils that we can look at and we can go, oh, well, I'm sure they meant the best, right? And you're like, no, clearly they didn't mean the best when they did that. that that's, just, that's just ignorance, right? In fact, I would say it's even arrogance if we're choosing to be that way. But we can be merciful towards them in our attitudes. And we could say, man, you know what? I made that mistake one point in my life too. Can I help you? Can, can, I, can, I, can I help you uh, back to Jesus? Can I, can I direct you back to him? This is the attitude that I think Jesus embodies so well and gives us a, a, such a good example of in Scripture, that as He comes alongside people, sinners, He doesn't just dominate them in conversation, right? He doesn't just say, man, you, I can't believe you did that. Scripture tells you not to do that. You're such a moron. He doesn't do that. He says, hey, would you come and follow me? And yes, sin no more. Please, don't, don't do that. But I'm going to be merciful towards you. And this is the attitude that we should have as well. As we look at others, we should be merciful towards them. Just like James chapter 3 says, but the wisdom from above, look at this, is first pure. This is wisdom, right? This isn't burying our head in the sand. This isn't ignorance and arrogance. This is wisdom from above. It's pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason. If you're a reasonable person in 2024, you have a superpower, right? There are so few reasonable people anymore, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. This is what it looks like to be a part of God's kingdom. Jesus even says, and this is later on in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, he'll say, judge not that you be not judged. I think of an example of scripture about someone who is merciful. uh, uh, David, he's the second king of Israel. And he's appointed that, but the first king of Israel saw, man, he's holding on. And he does not want to let go of his position. You know, a lot of people would say, man, why was God so merciful to David? David did a terrible thing. He commits adultery and then essentially kills this woman's husband. I mean, this is a terrible, terrible thing. And then God forgives him from that? Yeah, but think about how merciful David was towards Saul. Saul tried to kill him over and over, and he forgave him. He was open towards Saul. This is what Jesus is getting at when he says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. I don't know about you, but I need truckloads and truckloads of God's grace and his mercy and his forgiveness in my life. And if that's the case for me, that also means that I need to extend that to other people as well. That even in my thoughts, even in my intentions, in my conversations with others, that I am merciful. Why? Because I need God's mercy in my life. And this can be an upward spiral too. Like the more I observe God being merciful in my life, the more I can extend that mercy towards other people. That's why it says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
Here's beatitude number six. It happens in verse eight. I know I'm starting to run out of time here, so we're going to go through these next ones pretty quickly. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is the attitude that we see in Psalm 51, verse 10, when it says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. First Peter also uh, comments on this when it says, Having been purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Having a pure heart is this idea of having this un, uh, undistracted devotion to God. In other words, we don't have uh, things going on over here and things going on over there. And we don't say, well, God, you can have uh, 80% of my life, but these 20%, I'm holding on to that. No, no, no. It's a pure heart. We say, God, you have it all. Love from a pure heart. First John 3, 3 reminds us, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is what the, uh, it looks like to be pure, to say, God, you have my entire life. And I'm not holding on to anything. Beatitude number seven, this happens in verse nine. It says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Being a peacemaker is not just living with everyone in peace. Although that is important, that is an aspect of that. But we can do that passively, right? You can live with everyone in peace if you're a doormat, right? If you let anybody do whatever they want to you and say whatever they want to you, you can live in peace. Yeah, and, 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 and that's not really what God meant here, though. He says peacemakers. This is inevitably in our lives, there will be a situation where conflict arises. And in life, I don't have to tell you that. You know that there's conflict. There's conflict at work. There's conflict at home. There's conflict with your kids. There's conflict with coworkers. There's conflict with other people at Walmart. There are conflicts everywhere in our lives. And when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, he says, blessed are the people who can go into the conflict and live peacefully with people. Why? Primarily because they're pointing people towards Jesus, because they realize that the only way to live peacefully with you is to also live peacefully with God, as 2 Corinthians 5.18 says. It says, all this is from God, whom through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Paul will write to the church in Rome and he'll say, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Look at this. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. There are some people you are not going to be able to live peacefully with. They are going to choose things to say, I don't care what you do. I'm not going to live peacefully with you. These situations are rare, but they do happen. And they probably will happen to all of us in our lifetime. And Scripture says, hey, so far as it depends on you. In other words, we're not focusing on their behavior. We're focusing on our own behavior. And we say, God, what can I do to live peacefully with this person, even in the midst of conflict? He'll go on to say, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. I think of, again, David and Saul. David does this so well. As Saul's hunting him down, he's peaceable towards him. And by doing so, he heaps burning coals on Saul's head. And we can do that as well. It tells us, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
We can be the type of Christians to do that, to live in God's kingdom well, to embody what it truly looks like to be a peacemaker, as Jesus says. And it says they will be called sons of God. Because when you live in peace, your relationship with Jesus can be better. You ever have a conflict with someone? Let's say you and your spouse are fighting, and uh, what happens when you have some quiet time? Conversations are running through your head, don't it? You're, you're thinking, oh man, I should have said this. I can, oh, I, oh I, I could say that, and oh, it'll be great. And Hey, listen, when you live at peace with people, though, when you live up and you're, you're making peace with people, you have more time to pray. You have more time to be intimate with the Lord. This is what it looks like when it says they shall be son, called sons of God because your prayer life, your relationship with Jesus can grow deeper because you now live at peace with everyone around you. Here's the last beatitude. I know we've gone quickly through these, but these are the la- this is the last one, and it's a long one, but it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says this, and, and this is why we prayed earlier on in service for the church who is persecuted worldwide. We don't really see these. I mean, sure, there are uh, unique one-off situations here in the United States where Christians are persecuted. But for the most part, we see nothing compared to the church in North Korea, compared to the church in China, compared to the church in Iran or Iraq or Afghanistan. These are terrible places to be a believer. And yet, they're also some of the best places to be a believer. Because as I mentioned earlier, they have an aspect to their faith that we here in a free environment will never truly have. It's an intimacy with the Lord where you're hanging on for dear life. And it really means that. It really means that. And Jesus here, he's saying, hey, listen, there are people who are persecuted before you, and you're in good company if you are persecuted. And so for us today, we need to look at this and say, hey, listen, we're not being persecuted because of uh, foolishness or sensitive things, right? First Peter, he brings this idea up. He says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief, an evildoer or as a meddler. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him give glory to God in that name. He's saying, hey, listen, give glory to God when you're persecuted, not because of your own foolishness, but because of your faith in Jesus. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And then they can count it all joy, as James says, when they face these trials of various kinds. Why? Because it grows our faith. And so for us today, in a free environment, we might look at this and go, man, how am I, how do I do this? How do, how do I live with this beatitude? Because as we mentioned earlier, it's not pick and choose. We have to adopt this as well. But here's what I would say. Let's say we have to be willing to step out and to say, God, I'm going to follow you, even if it means you want me to go to a terrible place in the world where Christians are persecuted. I'm willing to do it. God may never call us. In fact, I would say for the vast majority of us, God will not call us. But for some of us, He will. He will call us. And if that is the case, we need to be faithful to go and do these things. And it gives this example here in the Beatitude, as Jesus is saying here, He's saying, hey, listen, Those who have gone before you, they're in heaven. And it 
it's a thought that we can have to say, man, I'm going to hang on to that hope. As 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. You can hang on to the hope in heaven. And ultimately, I think that's what the Beatitudes give us. It's a heavenly hope. You know, this, this world, this life, it's not an easy place to live. There is rampant sin all around us. And there has been since the beginning of time, and there will be until Jesus comes back. And we live in this environment. We live in an environment that is rapidly sinning. All, all around us. And it's difficult. And Jesus says, you don't have to have that with no hope. You can have the hope of heaven. You can have the hope of the Beatitudes. That blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are persecuted. It's a hope. It's a hope to say, I don't need to live my life the way the world tells me I need to live my life. I can hope in Jesus. I can hope in this. There are eight Beatitudes, and if you're into numbers, numbers are pretty significant in Scripture. Seven is a big one. It's kind of this idea of perfect, right? There's seven days in the week. There's this, like, that's like a perfect number. Twelve is another one. It's kind of this perfect ruling number. There's twelve tribes of Israel. There's twelve disciples, kind of a perfect uh, governing authority. You might say eight. There's eight Beatitudes. Why didn't Jesus make like seven or twelve? Eight's also significant. In Scripture, let me give you a couple of examples. Noah had eight people in his family that were saved from the flood. Abraham had eight sons in total. In the time of the New Testament, a day was divided into eight parts of three hours. Jesus, after his resurrection, reveals himself alive to people eight times. What does eight mean in Scripture? It's this idea of new beginnings. It's this idea of, I'm leaving the past behind. There's something that God has for me in the future. And the Beatitudes, it's a picture of that. It's a picture of heaven. It's a picture of what it looks like to be part of God's kingdom. And it's a hope that each and every one of us can have. Because when you live like this, when you live a peacemaker and a peaceful person, when you can live by being meek, when you can live by being poor in spirit and merciful over your sorrows and having a godly grief, man, you will live a life that God created you to live. You will live a life that is so much better than this world has for you. You will be so much more satisfied living your life these ways. Jesus says, come follow me. Let me transform you. Let me invite you into my kingdom. This is what I have for you. It's a hope of heaven. A hope that our hearts can be changed. And for each one of us, that should encourage us in our faith. To live in a sinful world and yet have hope that there is something better. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we thank you so much for your message the message that blessed are the people that live in a way that conforms to your image, conforms to your kingdom. Jesus, I pray that each and every one of us would live this life that you have for us. 
each and every one of us would say, your way is better, God, and I will submit to what you have. I pray for each and every one of us as we're in different situations in life. And I pray that no matter where we are, you would change our hearts. That you would help us to truly embody the Beatitudes. That we would be blessed. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.